I want to especially thank Robert. There are a lot of notes in that thing. <laughs> if you would take your Bibles, take your Bibles and open them up to 1 Peter. Chapter 2. I want you to have those it open there because we're going to go there in a minute. Now I want you to notice that the sermon title is Into the Maelstrom. It has nothing to do with Mother's Day. Okay, I don't want to now now some of you mothers, especially with small children, may think that a few hours with your children at the house, and your house looks like it has been through the maelstrom, okay? And there is chaos that runs in your life, and you're here, and you're there, and you never have a moment to yourself. Well, you may make that application, but I don't want you to think that that's what we're after today, okay? So let me pray. Lord, as we come to your word today, and as we dig deeply into who you are and what you call us to do, May our eyes be opened according to the power of your Holy Spirit. May our hearts be tender to hear what you have for us today. And Lord, might we live it to your glory and your praise. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to tell you a story this morning. And it's not my story, but it comes from somebody you probably know. In 1841, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a short story entitled Descent into the Maelstrom. Now, the story is told by an old man, and he reveals at, at, at the beginning of the story that he's not quite as old as everyone thinks. He says, you suppose me very old, but I'm not. It took less than a single day to change these hairs from jet black to white, to weaken my limbs and to unstring my nerves. The story is one of three brothers on a fishing trip and their journey into the maelstrom. Now, a maelstrom is a is a whirlpool, and sometimes it can be a very powerful whirlpool, uh, or it can also be used for the word for chaos. And this particular one that Poe is referencing in his story is located off the coast of Norway. And because of the ebb and the flow of the tides, because of the uneven seabed, and because of a couple of islands that stand at the front of this particular area, it forms what is called the maelstrom, a whirlpool. And it, when the tide comes in, the whirlpool is powerful. When the tide goes out, the whirlpool is powerful. And then there is an ebb time when it is not so powerful. And if you're courageous enough as a sailor, you can get around it. And this is the story of the three brothers who understood this. When it is flood, the stream runs up the country with a boisterous rapidity, but the roar of its impetuous ebb to the sea is scarce equaled by the loudest and most dreadful of the cataracts. The noise being heard several leagues off, and the vortices or pits are of such an extent and depth that if a ship comes within its attraction, it is inevitably absorbed and carried down to the bottom, where it is beat to pieces on the seabed floor. And when the water relaxes, the fragments rise to the top, and one can see the destruction. Myself and my two brothers once owned a schooner rig smack of about 70 tons with which we were in the habit of fishing among the islands in all the violent eddies at sea. We were in the habit of fishing among these islands for the fishing was good and at proper opportunities if one had the courage to attempt it, 
you could use the maelstrom to your advantage. See, the area closest to the maelstrom had the best fishing, had the best fishing. And these three brothers had learned over many years how to take advantage of the slack times and to move into the areas of danger and make a profitable catch and then retreat away from those waters. We three were the only ones who had made a regular business of going out to the islands. The usual grounds were much farther and lower down. And the usual grounds were way lower down to the south. Their their fish can be caught at all hours without much risk, and therefore these places were preferred. The choice spots over here among the rocks, however, yield the finest variety and the largest number of fish. What other areas of the ocean, what other areas of the ocean produce in a week? This one area produces in a single day. The three of us, my two brothers and I, had crossed over to the islands about two o'clock and soon loaded the boat with fine fish, which we all remarked were more plentiful that day than we had ever known them to be. It was just seven by my watch when we weighed and started for home so as to reach the maelstrom at slack water, which we knew would be at eight o'clock. Now, throughout the day, the brothers had seen the clouds in the distance, and they were dark and foreboding, but the area in which they were fishing was calm. The state of things, however, did not last long enough to give us time to think about it, for the storm was upon us in an instant. In a brief moment, the storm and the sky was entirely overcast, and and, and what with this and the driving spray, it became suddenly so dark that we could not see to the other side of the boat. Such a hurricane as then blew, it is folly to attempt to describe. The brothers immediately ran to the places that they felt were safest on the boat. The youngest brother lashed himself to the mast, thinking that the mast is the strongest point. It goes down to the keel, and it will never be taken away. The older brother clung to an empty water cask that had been securely lashed to the deck, And the middle brother, the one who is telling the story, grasped a ring bolt near the base of the foremast. It was mere instinct, he said, that prompted me to do this, which was undoubtedly the very best thing I could have done, for I was too terrified to think. The first wave hit and ripped the mast from the boat, taking with it the youngest brother. For some moments we were completely deluged, and as I say, all this time I held my breath and I clung to the bolt, When I could stand it no longer, I raised myself upon my knees, still keeping hold with my hands. I was now trying to get get the better of the stupor that had come upon me and to collect my senses so as to see what had been done. When I felt somebody grasp my arm, and it was my elder brother, and my heart leapt for joy, for I thought he too had been cast over to the side by the first wave. And he put his mouth close to my ear, and he screamed out one word, maelstrom and i knew by that one word what he meant we were headed into the chaos at the strongest point of the storm no one will ever know what my feelings were at that moment i shook from head to foot i knew what he meant by that one word i knew what he made me what he wished to make me understand that the wind now drove us on and we were bound for the world the maelstrom at its peak strength and nothing could ever save us uh, could have been, could not have been more than two minutes afterwards until we suddenly felt the waves subside and we were engulfed in foam. We were now in the belt of the surf that always surrounds the maelstrom. And I thought, of course, that in another moment we would plunge down into the abyss. Uh, 
Now, it may appear strange, but at that moment, when we were in the very jaws of the whirlpool, I felt more composed when, than when we were only approaching it. Having made up my mind that there was no hope, I got rid of the great deal of terror which unmanned me at first. I suppose it was the reality of my looming death. It may look like boasting, but what I tell you is the truth. I began to reflect how magnificent a thing it was to die in such a manner. Know how foolish it was for me to think of so paltry a consideration as my own individual life in view of so wonderful a manifestation of God's power. Now, after a little while, I became fascinated with the whirlpool itself. I positively felt a wish to explore its depth. And even at the sacrifice I was going to make, my principal grief was that I should never be able to tell my old companions about the wonders that I was going to see. Round and around the boat went, for, perhaps for an hour. All this time I never let go of the ring bolt. My brother was in the stern, holding on to that large water cast. Now as we approached the brink of the pit, he let go of the water cast. He rushed over to where I was and knocked me away from the ring bolt and grabbed upon it himself. As it was not large enough to afford us both a secure grasp, I did not attempt to re-hold it. I never felt a deeper grief than when I saw him, a raving maniac driven by sheer fright. I didn't think it could make any difference anyway, what I was holding on to. So I went to the stern where he had been and grasped on to the cask. Scarcely had I secured myself to my new position when we gave a wild lurch to starboard and rushed headlong down into the abyss. I muted a hurried prayer to God and thought that my life was now over. And as I felt the sickening sweep of the descent, I had instinctively tightened my hold on the barrel and closed my eyes. For some seconds, I dare not open them. I expected instant destruction. Never shall I forget the sensation of awe and horror and admiration with which I gazed about me. The boat appeared to be hanging as if magic about midway down the interior of the surface of the funnel, looking down into the prodigious death of the maelstrom. So down and down they went. With each revolution, they neared the inevitable depth, death that stared them in the face. He says, looking about me, I perceived that our boat was not the only object in the embrace of the whirlpool. Both above and below us were visible fragments of vessels, large masses of timbers and trunks of trees and many small articles such as household goods and furniture and broken boxes and barrels and staves. An unnatural curiosity had taken the place of my original terrors. I now began to watch with strange interest the numerous things that floated about in my company. Suddenly, I was struck with the dawn of a more exciting hope. This hope arose partly from my memory and partly from my present observation. I called to mind the great variety of buoyant manner that strewed across the coast of Lofoden, having been absorbed and then thrown out of the maelstrom. And by far the greater number of articles were shattered in the most extraordinary way, so chafed and rough as to have the appearance of nothing but great splinters. But then, I distinctly recollected that there was some of them which were not disfigured at all. I made an important observation that at every revolution we passed something like a barrel. I no longer hesitated what to do. 
I resolved to lash myself securely to the water cast upon which I now held, to cut it loose and from the counter, and to throw myself into the maelstrom itself. I attracted my brother's attention by signs and pointed to the floating barrels that came nearby us and, and did everything in my power to make him understand what I was about to do, but he shook his head. Despairingly, he refused to move from his station, holding on to that ring bolt. He was so secure and so frightened that he thought this was the only means of survival. But it was impossible to force him, and I resigned him to his fate. I fastened myself to the cast by means of the lashing and threw myself into the sea without another moment's hesitation. The result was precisely what I had hoped it might be. The barrel to which I attached sunk very little further than half the distance between the bottom and the spot which I had left overboard before a great change took place in the character of the whirlpool and I found myself on the surface of the ocean in full view of the shores of Lofoden. You see, he had survived the maelstrom by lashing himself to the barrel and diving into the maelstrom diving into the chaos which was about him. While the other brothers lashed themselves to something that they felt was secure, he saw from observation what was necessary to survive and the only means of survival. And that was to get into the midst of the maelstrom, lashed to something that would survive. Take your Bibles now and I'm going to read from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Peter is not saying, I've just made this up. He's not saying this just came to me out of the blue. It's something really cool. He said, this is the teaching of Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Shall not be disappointed. Now, according to the building practices of Peter's time, when men set about to build a building, they wanted stones that fit perfectly. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know if you go to the, to the Temple Mount, you go to the wall, there, are, there is no mortar in those joints. Okay? They fit flush. It is so hard even to get a piece of paper stuck between those joints because those stones are cut perfectly. But the most important stone of all those stones is the cornerstone. The perfection of the cornerstone helped maintain the perfect symmetry of the rest of the building. Now, the Greek word which we translate as corner literally means at the extreme angle. So a cornerstone set all the angles of the building and all other stones flowed off of that one cornerstone. So it had to be perfect. Because not only did the stones go out from it, but the stones went up from it. And if it was off the entire building would be off as well. To build the temple that we know as the church, it was necessary to have a cornerstone that was what? Perfect. That perfect, elect, prepared cornerstone is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He is the stone that sets all angles, all angles. Jesus is chosen and precious. That word precious means costly, irreplaceable, without equal. He is unique. Now, often in society, we say something is what? Oh, that's, that's very unique. No. It is either unique or it is very cool or very neat. Because unique means 
singular, one of a kind. Jesus is perfect. He is unique. He is one of a kind. And God measured Christ by the measuring standards of his own perfection. And what did he say about Christ? Behold my son in whom I am well pleased. But what did men do with that perfect cornerstone? we, We rejected him. He said he wasn't right. That's not what we're looking for. That's what they said in the first century. No, that can't be the one, can't be the Messiah. But yet he was the perfect one. But Christ is not just the hunk of stone that that stays and, and doesn't move. He is the living stone. Living in that he was raised from the dead, triumphant over sin, triumphant over death, triumphant over hell. He is the author and giver of life, able to impart to us all of the spiritual nourishment that we need as believers, as his church, as the temple that he has built. That means that Christianity is not a religion of dead rituals. It is a living faith. It is a relationship with the Lord of the universe. He calls your name. He says, you, come to me. In fact, he draws you unto him. Such is his care and his love for you. We come to him. We we get to commune with him daily in his word, building our very lives upon the foundation that he has laid. And he who believes in him shall not be ashamed, shall not be disappointed. So my friends, this is what it comes down to. There is a maelstrom in the world. And the only way that we as believers can survive is to lash ourselves to Christ and to dive into it. See, if you think you can go, well, you know what, I'm going to lash myself to the, to the mast. Because the mast is really secure. I'm going to hold to this ring bolt that is bolted in. But you are still bolted into the what? You're bolted into the boat. You're not clinging to Christ. Now, what would the boat be? The boat might be our traditions, the things that we feel secure in, the things that we have made over the years and we find security in. You know what? Let's, let's try this. No, it's because we've never done it that way before. I'm going to cling to this mass of the way that I've always known it. And, and, and the Lord says, no. Here is Jesus Christ. Lash yourself to Christ so securely that you can never let go because he will hang on and we need to cling to Christ and throw yourself into the maelstrom because only then can you find and do what you were created to do. Live the faith. Produce the fruit. Rest on the foundation of Christ alone. Without a sure foundation, the world will consume you. That's just the way it is. It is a maelstrom waiting to consume believers who take their eyes off of Christ, waiting to consume us if we think that our traditions are good enough. No, only Christ is good enough. Only Christ is good enough. If we lash ourselves to anything other than Christ, anything made by man, traditions, worldly wisdom, conventional wisdoms, anything like that, it's not enough. And if we lash ourselves to something that is secure, But don't jump into the maelstrom. We have failed as well. Because like Poe's fisherman, he didn't stay on the boat lashed to the barrel. He dove into the water lashed to the barrel. My friends, Christ calls us to cling to him and get into the world and do the things that he calls us to do. Produce the fruit. Do the things of our Heavenly Father. 
John Mason Neal, writing in the 19th century, wrote, Christ is made the sure foundation, Christ the head and cornerstone, chosen of the Lord and precious, binding all the church in one. Holy Zion's help forever in her confidence alone. Will you stand with me? We're going to sing number 557. 557. Friends, don't leave here and think that you can, you can cling to anything else but Christ. Because you're going to leave and go into the maelstrom. This is, this is a safe place, but out there is the maelstrom, is the chaos. And if you're not lashed to Christ, it will consume you. It will eat you up. Heavenly Father, come upon us today. Let us find the great comfort that we know is in Christ. The security that is in Christ. For when we are yours, you never let us go. But you expect us out there in the maelstrom. And there's only one thing that we can cling to that will give us security and safety and the power to do your will. And that is the things of Christ. Send us out, Lord, that we may do his will in every aspect we ask in his name. Amen. Amen.